We're still in Mark chapter 5. We have come as far as verse 21. So we'll read starting there. It says, When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. And now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? I don't know that he said it like that. Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except James, or Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. And he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child, and those who were, were with him, and entered where the child was lying. And he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. We see the miraculous, we see the practical. Raises her from the dead, give her something to eat. Jesus returns here to, it says, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That's really his side. He had gone over to the other side last week to uh, meet the demoniac among the tombs and cast those legion of spirits out of him. So his headquarters have been in Capernaum, so it's likely that he's come there, but we're not given the location specifically. One account does say that he came to his own city, and we know it was a seaside city. Uh, So it wasn't Nazareth. And so uh, this multitude's gathered to him. Huge crowds have begun to follow Jesus continually. You can imagine, here's a man who heals diseases and afflictions. He casts out unclean spirits that are tormenting people. He performs miracles by his commanding words and draws a crowd. In this situation, we see two circumstances vying for Jesus' attention at the same time, sort of parallel events. 
you know, he's in the body, he's going to be interrupted. He deals with one thing at a time, right? We no longer have to be concerned about him being busy with something else when we call upon him because he's infinite and he can hear and, and know all the things that we would cry out to him about. But these, these two situations he's confronted with. First, Jairus comes to Jesus. He's a ruler of the synagogue. No doubt quite familiar with the teachings and works of power of Jesus if he's in a synagogue there in Capernaum. And he believes in Jesus. He falls down before Jesus and begs him concerning his daughter, who he says is lying near death or at the point of death. His faith is expressed in his statement as he says, Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. He has faith in the power of Jesus to heal sickness, even serious sickness, deathly sickness. His faith is not quite as great as the centurion's faith because he thinks Jesus has to come there and lay his hand on her to raise her from the dead, well, to heal her at this point. Um, you know, remember the centurion said, uh, you don't need to come to my house. His servant was ill, and he said, I'm a man under authority, and I, or man over people in authority. I can tell them, go do this, go do that, and, and they do it. And he said, all you have to do is speak the word, you know. Wow. Jesus said, I haven't seen such great faith even in Israel. But Jairus' faith will be put to a greater test. Where is faith when all hope seems to be gone? Meanwhile, the crowd, described as a great multitude, is following Jesus to Jairus' house. Now, the phrase in the Greek is many people. The implication is that the group is disorganized. There's a tumult. It's chaotic. It's not violent, but it's quite raucous. We're told that the crowd was thronging Jesus, that is, pressing in on him, pressing him on every side. This is the same word used in the wine press for crushing the grapes. People were bumping and jostling one another, including Jesus. In this scene is a certain woman. As is common with many people in the Gospels, we never know her name. She was not interviewed by the media after the event. We know Jairus' name since he's a prominent person. But this is a certain woman. She's not just any woman in God's sight. She's a woman among the multitude. Sometimes we may feel insignificant among the sea of humanity, over 7 billion strong on the earth now. I actually tried to look it up, and as of May 2021, 7.9 billion people in the world. We are not lost among them to God. David wondered, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? In Psalms 8, now, the vastness of the universe, God is interested in mankind created in his image and likeness. Within this vastness of the universe, what is tiny man? We may also ask, who am I that God should be concerned about me? Many atheists believe that man is insignificant because he is so small in relation to the universe. And of course, to them, man is but an accident of material, impersonal forces, never mind where the material came from. Yet in all the universe, we alone are made in the image and likeness of God. He is very concerned about you and me, about every person who lives or ever lived or ever shall live. He desires that all men come to him and know him. So this certain woman, we are told, had a flow of blood that has continued for 12 years. 
Is she anemic? How could she not be? This is a continual hemorrhaging. She has spent all that she has on physicians and has not gotten better, but worse. It says she suffered many things from many physicians, perhaps experimental clinical trials or treatments which were painful or humiliating. Thank God for physicians and medical science, but it's not perfect, sometimes much less than perfect. The joke is that that is why they call it practicing medicine. You practice to become perfect, but in this case, perfection has never arrived, and it is not cheap to remain uncured or unhealed. In New Testament days, only people of means could even consult a doctor. So this woman was probably quite well-to-do at one time. Henry Morris says, large and fruitless medical bills are apparently not uniquely a modern phenomenon. Mark Twain famously quipped, be careful about reading health books. You may die of a misprint. And there's the joke. Maybe it's a joke. What do you call someone who graduates last in his class from medical school? Mm-hmm. Answer, doctor. Years ago, I read a book titled Confessions of a Medical Heretic by Dr. Mendelssohn. Anybody read that one? It was uh, published in 1979, um, but it probably still be an interesting read. It was enlightening, but it was scary a scary read. Uh, at one point, Mendelssohn talked about this was probably in the 70s the doctors in New York City went on strike and the death rate plummeted (laughs) and we don't we don't know why I think it probably had a lot to do with them not filling out paperwork you know so it'd be interesting to see if if the death rate spiked you know after that when they went back to work there was even a proverb in Jesus' day that he quoted physician heal thyself and he'll say that to the people in Nazareth. In other words, give us proof that you're a good doctor. They were asking for a sign before they would believe in him. Here are some of the remedies of the day for this woman's condition, this hemorrhaging, constant flow of blood. Uh, There were Jewish remedies. According to the Babylonian Talmud, there's one thing you can do is take gum from Alexandria, the weight of a silver coin, and crocus and alum, alum is an astringent which pulls tissues together. And so you take those uh, silver coin, crocus and alum of the same weight, and you mix it with wine and drink it. Then if that doesn't work, take three pints of Persian onions, not just any onions. Boil them in wine, drink that, and have someone yell at you, arise from your flux. If that doesn't work, you take a cup of wine in your right hand, sit where two roads cross, crossroads, if you know the song, that's not probably not a good idea. You, know. <laughs> you sit where two roads cross, sit there, and you drink, and someone sneaks up behind you and startles you and screams, arise from your flux. <laughs> if that doesn't work, take a handful of cumin, crocus, and fenugreek, boil that in wine, drink that, Again, arise from your flux, your flow. So those were Jewish remedies. Now, I understand that many of the um, doctor's remedies of that day were were good and worked well. I mean, they had thousands of years of experience to experiment. And a lot of those 
uh, remedies lasted up until you know the 1800s and the birth of modern medicine or so forth. So it wasn't all. I mean, this is like stuff you read on the internet. You know, you've got this pain and you go there to figure out what it is and you get all these remedies. I mean, I've seen hundreds of cures for type 2 diabetes. You know, on the, on the internet. Well, that was the Jewish remedies. Roman and Greek doctors prescribed prescribed these things. They said, take her clothing a cloak or something, and you cut it in strips. You tie the strips to a tree, and on a windy day when the strips are fluttering, stand next to the tree, and the health of the tree will go into you, and your disease will go into the tree. My comment is you may have a barking cough. (laughs) Or you get the ashes of an ostrich egg shell, ostrich egg shell, you put it in the menstrual claws. You have to put it in linen if it's summertime and winter if it's uh, cotton if it's wintertime. If that doesn't work, then you find a white female donkey. And when the donkey has a bowel movement, you pick barley corn out of her dung. You wash it, of course. We're not uncivilized. You crush it. You can use it as a poultice in a menstrual cloth again, or you can ingest it. This measures the level of your desperation. In this case, if you ingest it, you use the whole barley corns. You don't have to crush them. Now, here's the, the thing. If they pass through your system in one day, your bleeding will stop for one day. If they pass through your system in two days, the bleeding will stop in two day, for two days. Um, if it, they pass through your system in three days, it'll stop for good. So you take these barley corns, you ingest them, and you got to do what you can to slow down your system. You know? <laughs> or you get on the side of a hill where there are terraces for growing grapes, and you take the ashes of vine cuttings, you mix with wine, you sit on seven hills between the ditches and you say, arise from your flux. <laughs> well, needing medical help can be frightening. And sometimes help is beyond the ability of medical science. There is then only one place left to go. Nothing is impossible for God. And we know that he is able to heal all people of all conditions at all times. But we often do not know his will for a specific person and specific condition at a specific time. But there's no reason not to try and reach out and touch the hem of his garment, as this woman did. What is there to lose? What if this woman had decided, nah, I'm just being overly optimistic. There are too many people here. I'll just go home and be unclean. It's been 12 years. What's another 12? We do not know how old this woman is, but we do know that passing blood would render her unclean as in her customary impurity or in her menstrual cycle. She did not, as the leper, have to go around yelling unclean, covering herself in a certain way, or remaining completely isolated from all others. Yet this was both a physical ailment and her shame. Consider the law regarding bodily discharges for a woman. It's in Leviticus 15, starting in verse 19. 
It says, if a woman has a discharge and the discharge from her body is blood, she shall be set apart seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything that she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean. Also, everything that she sits on shall be unclean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. A lot of uncleanliness going on here. And we're talking ritual, spiritual, being spiritually unclean. Whoever touches anything she sat on shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. If anything is on her bed or on anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. And if any man lies with her at all so that her impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days. And every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, this is the case with our woman, other than at the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And whatever she sits on shall be unclean as the uncleanness of her impurity. Whoever touches those things shall be unclean. He shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. You can see the desperate situation of a woman in this condition and our woman as she thinks about approaching Jesus. And she's among this crowd jostling everyone. All the people that touch her, unbeknownst to them, are being rendered unclean. If she touches Jesus according to the law, he should be unclean. And of course, that never happens with Jesus. He touches the leper. They become clean. He doesn't become unclean. Well, this uncleanness would be a stigma among her friends and acquaintances and probably a family problem as well. This would be grounds for divorce, according to the rabbis. People who did not want to be unclean and go through the ritual of cleansing would just stop coming around and begin avoiding you in public as well. Real isolation taking place here. Your pool of friends would become quite small or non-existent. She would not be allowed in synagogues or temple. She would be considered she would be considered cursed of God by many because of some sort of sin, and this is why this has happened to her. Um, G. Campbell Morgan says, by the very law of her people, she was ostracized from all society, must not come into contact with her old friends. She was excommunicated from the services of the synagogue and thus shut out from the women's courts in the temple. Well, this certain woman is certain that she wants to touch Jesus, at least his garments. And she is certainly certain that she will certainly be healed of this discharge if she does so. Certainly. She's quite a certain woman. She hears about Jesus. He's nearby. She gets into the crowd and follows and touches his garments. So she knows about Jesus. She knows he's been healing people. She sees him go by and she gets in that crowd. Her faith is expressed in her thoughts when she says, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Everyone knows that Jesus has been healing all manner of diseases, and this is her chance. He's the source of healing. She reasons that she only needs to touch his clothes, and she touches the source, the fountainhead, and she's correct. She touches Jesus' clothes, and immediately her flow of blood stops. You know, Mark's favorite word, immediately. 
and she's completely healed in an instant, and she knows it. She feels the change take place. It's time to turn around and go home. No one needs ever know. But alas, Jesus stops and says, Who touched my clothes? And the apostles are astounded. What are you talking about, Jesus? People are touching you constantly. And you're asking, who touched me? But this was a different touch. It wasn't just a physical touch. Many people were touching Jesus physically. Only this woman touched Jesus spiritually with faith. Someone said there's a difference between the touch of physical nearness and the touch of desperate faith. Others were touching Jesus as a person touches a person, accidentally or indifferently, just bumping into each other. But there's a huge difference between bumping into Jesus here and there and reaching out to touch him in faith. You can come to church week after week and bump into Jesus. That isn't the same as reaching out to touch him in faith. But this woman touched Jesus as a person reaches out to touch the Lord with expectancy and hope and above all, faith in him. And her faith is rewarded. But now she's put on the spot. David Guzik says, because this woman's condition was embarrassing and because she was ceremonially, ceremonially unclean and would be condemned for touching Jesus or even being an oppressing crowd, she wanted to do this secretly. But Jesus looks right at her. He turns and looks at the one who has done this and says, who, who touched me? He knows who's touched him. He wants admission, this confession of faith which is important. Now, maybe she would rather slip away quietly, but that's not possible. Jesus looks at her, and she breaks down, fearing and trembling, and confesses all. She spills her guts, as they say. She doesn't really know how Jesus will react. She did not approach for permission or ask if he's willing to heal her. She just snuck up and touched his robe. She's approached surreptitiously and she may be seeking to sneak away now unclean unworthy stealing a healing it's an unauthorized healing will it be revoked Jesus wants her to know who he is not just the fact that he heals diseases and she doesn't know Jesus she just knows what he's been doing. Uh, she doesn't know. Is he is he going to be angry? Is he going to revoke this healing? And say, oh, you know, you run clean and you touched me and I'm going to rebuke you and your disease is back. Mm-hmm. No, Jesus is not angry. But rather he is pleased by her reaching out to him in faith. She doesn't know what he's like, but now she's finding out what he's like. She's getting to know him. He's done this out of compassion for her, even though it was all surreptitiously. He says to her when he speaks, he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. This word daughter is the same word that's used of the little girl of Jairus. So it's a tender word. It's a, it's a slightly different form. And that word, well, no, that's, that's a different word. We'll get to that later. But he calls her daughter in the same sense. It's the only woman that Jesus says this to, uses that word with. 
your faith has made you well. Go in peace or go into peace and be healed of your affliction. And that indication there is healed permanently of your affliction. This will not return. Everyone would normally be astounded by this entire event, but there's no time. Now Jairus is likely nervously shifting from foot to foot, at least on the inside. We need to move, Jesus. Time's a-wasting. He doesn't want to interrupt Jesus. He's the last person he would want to offend at this time. And while Jesus is still speaking these words to the woman, someone comes from Jairus' house with devastating news. Your daughter's died. Don't trouble Jesus any further. We're not given Jairus' thinking. Someone in this situation might actually be angry at this woman who has caused the delay. She intruded on my audience with Jesus. I was here first. She should have waited her turn. She's not going to die in the next few minutes. We could have been there in time and my daughter would live. If not for this interruption, my daughter could be alive. But now she's died. What kind of thoughts might go through a mind in such a situation? There was hope. We found Jesus. He's on the way. But now it's too late, he thinks. There's not a lot of time to take in this word because as Jesus speaks encouragement and hope, immediately, when he hears this, Jesus speaks up right away, but immediately as well, Jairus' hopes would be dashed. So his hopes are up here. Jesus is going to heal her. Hopes dashed. Hopes back up here because of what Jesus says. Immediately, all these phrases, have things happen immediately. The only hope left for this life would be resurrection from the dead. Resurrections from the dead are fairly rare, even in the Bible. You know, there are only ten recorded for us, and several have yet to occur at this point in time, uh, where we are in Mark five. This is the first in Mark's gospel. The widow of Nain's son may have been earlier, and it's recorded in Luke's gospel. Nain would have been some distance away, and it's kind of short time frame, so Jairus may possibly have never even heard of that. In some ministries today, you might think that resurrections are commonplace, given the claims that are made. But the documentation for these is suspiciously lacking. God can still raise the dead, of course, and he will. And I would not doubt that it has happened on occasion in the post-biblical church age, but it is not commonplace. That awaits the general resurrection from the dead, the first of which takes place in the rapture of the church. Now here are the ten resurrections that are recorded for us. The widow of Zarephath's son, raised by Elijah, 1 Kings 17. The Shunammite woman's son, raised by Elisha, 2 Kings 4. The dead man thrown into Elisha's tomb. Elisha gets credit for this, so it's Elisha sort of, you know, <laughs> responsible. <laughs> Second Kings 13. The widow of Nain's son, which possibly took place before Jairus' daughter, in Luke 7, raised by Jesus, three by Jesus, only three resurrections recorded for us that, you know, Jesus raised the dead. There may, may have been others. You know, he did so many things that, that aren't recorded, for sure. Widow Nain's son, Jairus' daughter here. So that's only the fifth resurrection we have recorded for us in the Bible. And it hadn't happened yet at our point in time. Not a lot to base your hope on for a resurrection. Mark 5, Jesus, Lazarus, 
by Jesus in John 11. Actually, there's another one by by Jesus, but he's collaborating with some other people. They're called the Father and the Son. Uh, many saints in Matthew 27, after the resurrection of Jesus, they go into the city and, and proclaim things. So raised by God. Jesus' resurrection is number eight. Uh, he was raised by God, but God means the Father, Galatians 1.1, 1, 1, and Ephesians 1.17 through 20. It also means the Son, John 2.19, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And John 10.18, where he says, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down, and I take it up again. And then by the Spirit, Romans 8.11, raised by God's Spirit from the dead. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all involved in the resurrection from the dead of Jesus. Uh, that's recorded in Matthew 28. It's recorded at the end of each gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. And of course, this is a special resurrection. It sealed our justification, and he was the first one raised never to die again. And then the ninth is Tabitha or Dorcas. That's uh, She was raised by Peter in Acts 9. And then Eutychus, raised by Paul in Acts 20. And there's always some debate on Eutychus. He, he fell out of that third story window. He was taken up as dead. And uh, Paul laid on him and prayed. And then Paul says his life is in him. So some people say, well, he didn't really die. He just uh, had wind knocked out of him. <laughs> but we'll count him. Number 10. And that's it. So Jairus would not have a lot to base hope upon. He may not have even heard of the widow of Nain's son, but if he had, he may have heard it more as a rumor or a legend. When we die physically, it is nearly always for the duration. If we believe in Christ Jesus, we have hope of the future resurrection to life. And this is why Paul could write to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 and say, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, and he uses that euphemism for Christian death, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. We sorrow, but we don't sorrow as those who have no hope because we have the hope, living hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This future hope is a comfort for the believer. If we do not believe in Jesus, we are without hope. There is only the resurrection to damnation. And this is what the Bible teaches. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, he's speaking to these uh, Gentiles who were saved, and he says, at that, at that time when they were lost in the world, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So they were without Christ, therefore they were without God, therefore they were without hope. You can't be with God 
without Christ. He's the only way. The good news of salvation can only be appreciated in the light of the reality of the situation, which is the bad news of eternal death apart from that salvation that God freely provides to those who are willing to be reconciled to him. Well, we're told as soon as Jesus hears the word that was spoken that she has died, don't bother the master anymore. As soon as, in the New King James, is the same as same word immediately. I guess they got tired of translating it with the same word all the time. <laughs> so Jesus hears it, and the, the word is overhears. So he, you know, he hears what's going on as he's still speaking to the woman. It's while he's still speaking, this guy comes and says this. So he overhears it. Uh, the word can also mean ignores, and it's you know he both overhears and probably ignores it because it's not the end. So he hears the word that's spoken. He says to the ruler of the synagogue, "Do not be afraid, even in the face of death. Only believe." The tense of this statement says, "You must stop being afraid, and you must keep believing." So it's a continuous action. Life has departed from the body, but hope has not departed because Jesus is present. Jesus encourages Jairus to believe in him and what he's able and willing to do because Jesus has the power over life and death. Jesus only allows Peter, James, and John to accompany him from this point. This appears to be the first time these three are set apart and taken with Jesus in certain situations. It happens here, happens on the Mount of Transfiguration, in the Garden of Gethsemane as he goes further along to pray. David Guzik says often these are considered the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Yet it could be just as true that Jesus knew he had to keep a special eye on these three. In other words, they may have needed this a lot more than the other ones. And I think that's why God makes some people Bible teachers. He says, I've got to have a close watch on this one. Well, these three accompany him now to Jairus' house where they encounter the mourners already on the job, weeping and wailing. There's a tumult going on. Mourning was a very loud and demonstrative affair, and many times professional mourners were hired for the occasion. Actually, in the day, well, this is after the day, but uh, at the time that Jesus is uh, dealing with this here, even the poorest man was required by common custom. So we have our funeral customs, right? Which end up costing a lot of money usually. Well, by common custom, even the poorest man had to hire a minimum of two flute players and one professional mourner in the event of his wife's death. So it's probable that the one who held the rank of synagogue ruler would be expected to hire a large number of professional mourners. So you have these mourners here, they're weeping and wailing. The immediate family would likely be mourning quietly in great grief, sorrow of heart. And Jesus confronts the mourners and asks, why make this commotion and weep? He has no patience for false grief. He says, this child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Literally, they kept ridiculing him. That's another constant action. Another gospel says they laughed him to scorn. They made fun of him and his statement. And, and it is a pretty unbelievable statement. But this reveals the character of their mourning. It's hollow, noise alone. They do not have the brokenness of heart for this child or the family. It's a job. J 
Jesus is telling the truth. He uses the believer's euphemism for death, that of being asleep. The body sleeps in death. The soul of the believer goes to be with God in his presence, awaiting the resurrection of the body. 2 Corinthians 5, first 10 verses. <coughs> Jesus knows this daughter of the ruler of the synagogue is a believer because he says she's asleep. Jesus put the scoffers outside, and he goes into the girl's room with the father, mother, and his three companions. In verse 41 of Mark 5, it says, He took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, this is Aramaic, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And the, the word that's translated little girl for us uh, is derived from the uh, word for little lamb. So a very tender word in speaking to this daughter. And, and so Jesus knows. You know, she's 12 years old, but she's a believer in him. And they've raised her to believe in the God of Israel. So this is very much as Jesus spoke to the widow of Nain's son. said, you know, young man, get up. Uh, he spoke to Lazarus. He had to tell him to come out of the tomb because he had already been buried for four days. But he simply speaks to them, saying, Get up, come out from among the dead. And they come out, back to the land of the living. Jesus is the Lord over life and death. In John chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, he says, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. Don't be surprised. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. That time yet to come. And they'll come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. In John 11, when Jesus is going to Lazarus' family after he has died, uh, in verse 21, uh, Lazarus' sister Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Very much like Jairus. You know, come and heal them before they're gone. Uh, but even now, she says, I know whatever you ask of God, God will give to you, but I'm afraid to ask you for that. <laughs> And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she says, Yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is to, who is to come into the world. He is the life. He is the resurrection. If anyone's to have life, it will be at his command. In John chapter 5 again, verses 39 and 40, he tells uh, these people who are challenging him, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. He wanted all to come to him and received the life that he had to give. But some were not willing to come. These were not willing to come. He gives life to those who are willing to come to him. The last part of verse 40 here is the appeal. Come to me that you may have life. 
in verses 42 and 43 of Mark 5, then it says, immediately the girl arose. No one delays when Jesus gives a direct command. When he speaks to the dead, he says, get up. They respond. Where are they? They're, they're not non-existent. Where they, they're somewhere where they can hear the voice of Jesus as he speaks, telling them to get up. So immediately the girl rose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said something should be given her to eat. The girl's 12 years of age, the same time during which the certain woman has suffered with the unclean flow of blood. This 12-year span underlines the parallel events that bring this woman and this family together to Jesus at exactly the same time. For this 12-year period, the woman has suffered, and the family of Jairus has had great joy in the presence of their daughter. Is one more pleasing to God than the other? We might think so, but at this time, the fortunes are reversed. The woman is made whole, and the daughter falls ill and dies. We have to be careful in judging one another when tragedy strikes. But both the woman and Jairus respond to God in faith. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, Without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, we see the many things accomplished in the lives of men and women by walking in faith, believing God, even in the midst of contradictory data. The world may say it is impossible. No, all things are possible with God, Jesus said. It may be improbable, highly improbable, but God is not only the God of the impossible, but also of the improbable. We know the Bible, we know all things are possible with God, but it's improbable that he's going to do something in this situation, we might think. We not only know our Bible, but we know statistics. When it comes to God, you can throw out the, the statistics. He delights in surprising his people with blessings. If we believe him, he will sometimes surprise us. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jesus exhorts us, have faith in God. Does anyone receive anything from God apart from faith? Yes, unbelievers do all the time. I did, you did, although we may have been oblivious to the source that's the goodness of God. But a relationship with God can only be entered into by faith. And God delights to bestow his blessings upon those who trust in him. Since Jesus has entered his public ministry, he's been healing the sick and afflicted, casting out the unclean spirits, teaching God's word. In the period since the storm in chapter 4, we've seen a ratcheting up of the revealing of Jesus to the world. Jesus exhibited his total control over the forces of nature and the calming of the storm on the sea. He's the Lord of all, of all creation. And he can exert control over any and all created things at any time that he desires. We've seen Jesus' power and authority over unclean spirit beings. In this case, those bent on bringing destruction and death to the world. He is all-powerful when it comes to evil spirits. He will seal his victory over them by the most unlikely means imaginable by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. In Colossians chapter 2, we're told this, verses 13 through 15. 
speaking to the Colossians, he says, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of their, your heart, your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. All those things that were accusatory toward you were nailed to the cross in the person of Jesus. He says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He triumphed over the, all these powers of darkness, principalities and powers we're talking about. You know, he's already, he already reigns over the good principalities and powers. He, we're talking about evil principalities and powers here, uh, that he triumphs over them in his death upon the cross because he was raised from the dead. Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All the principalities and powers, including the evil ones, are going to bow the knee and confess. They won't have any choice but to do so. It won't mean that they're saved. Well, here in chapter 5, Jesus has demonstrated his absolute power over sickness and death. He's able to heal the most incurable of conditions and give life back to those who have died. This guarantees his ability in the future to heal those who do not experience healing in this life and to bring back to life those who die without being raised in the present. He's promised, and he has the power and authority to carry out the promises he has made. And his word is good. He's never failed to do that, which he says he will do. We can trust him. And that's the thing most pleasing to him. To trust him in the face of the contrary. To place our faith in all that he has said and look to him for the fulfillment and completion of his work. We've seen that Jesus is Lord over nature, over spirit entities, over disease, over death. We see in these events that Jesus is Lord of all. In just a few verses, he's demonstrated that he is all-powerful. He's the Lord of the extremes. He's got the middle covered, but he is Lord as far out as you can go in any direction. His power is not limited to a geographic or temporal period. You know, he, did, he worked in Jewish lands. He worked in Gentile lands. He, learned, he, he works on land, sea, or air. <laughs> And he works at any time. His power is not limited to those things we find easy or reasonable. You know, I may be able to help you get up from your chair. Maybe. He will help you get up from death. Guaranteed. He can do all things. If keeping his word to you requires doing the impossible, it shall not be impossible for him. It shall be done. He will do it. Jesus declares himself to be the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. There's no place in space or time that he is not Lord. There's no state of matter over which he does not have complete authority. All things are not revealed now that shall be, but what he has promised is as sure as what has already been. Meanwhile, you can rest completely in his words and in his hands. Hold on to his hand. 
But if the time comes when you feel you can't even hold on any longer, he will hold on to you. I remember a message I heard years ago from Damien Kyle, in which he said, there will be times in life that the Lord will bring you through, not because you're holding on to his hand, but because he is holding on to your hand, and he won't let go. And I saw a condensed text of his message and what he actually said it was after I recorded this from memory what he actually said is you're not going to come through because of your grip upon him it's going to be his grip upon you by which you will come through whatever that situation is so he's the Lord of the beginning and the end he's the Lord of the temporal and the eternal He's the Lord of life and death. He's the Lord of the past, the present, and the future. He's the Lord of the chronic or prolonged affliction and the acute or sudden disaster. Whatever your condition or your need, he is the Lord of all. And you can still reach out and touch Jesus as certainly as this certain woman did. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and uh, taking this from the King James Version because it uses the word touched. In verse 14 it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We can still touch him, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Uh, the King, New King James is correct. I mean, you know, he cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He ha- he sympathizes with us. He understands what the situation is. He can have compassion on us, not just because of his nature, but because of his experience and his understanding. Our infirmities are weaknesses, disease, frailty. He knows the sorrows of bereavement. He was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. In concluding in verse 16, he says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need.